James 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The word of the Lord. Let's welcome Dustin as he comes this morning. It's a joy to worship with you this morning and with the hummingbirds. You guys pretend like you don't notice those hummingbirds. That, that's something else, knowing that if we stopped singing, they would pick up where we left off uh, in praise of their creator. Is, um, it's, a, it's, it's a joy. At, at Del Cerro, when we're outside, we get blackbirds and crows, and it's not quite the same. <laughs> well, let me pray as we begin our time together. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word. I'm personally grateful for the, for the brotherhood that, that we share as churches. I think for the prayers of this dear church as they've prayed for our church. And Lord, I thank you for answering the prayers that the pastors of both of these churches have, have been graciously answered by, by you and by your kindness, by your mercy towards us. Lord, I pray as we look to your word this morning that that you would help us to see what it means to be a Christian, living in this age, waiting for Jesus to come back. Encourage us this morning, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Look, a couple weeks ago as churches, and I'm, I'm almost positive that you guys did this as well, as Christians, we all celebrated Christ's resurrection together, didn't we? Christ is risen. He is ascended into heaven, amen? He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And as the old creed says, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. This is what we believe as Christians. It's what we confess. And it's what Christians like us have believed for, for millennia. Ever since Jesus told his first followers that he would return in glory. And like those early Christians, our lives are defined by this age that we live in, this time between, right? The time between the resurrection that we celebrate every Sunday, but especially on Resurrection Sunday, and the return of Christ, the time that we look forward to out ahead of us. And faith, faith is understanding that. Faith, living in faith is living in the darkness of this broken world that we're all in together, and having our steps illuminated by two lights, the light of the resurrection behind us that we acknowledge and appreciate every day, and the light ahead of us, the light of our hope in Christ's return. And as Christians, we are, because of the Holy Spirit in us, we are the only people in all of the world 
who can see those two lights and who walk by those two lights. That's why in the book of James, as, as you read and study the book of James on your own, as I'm sure many of us do, it's, it's a book that's very, very easy to, to, um, to digest. But in the book of James, the writer is so hard on those who would say, well, I have faith, but their, their life doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like they're walking by that faith. He says that's a dead faith. His faith isn't just saying Christ died, Christ rose again, and he will return. That's, that's just mental assent. Faith is not mental assent. It's, faith is not a, a one-time prayer. Faith is living, or as the Bible teaches, walking in light of Christ's death and resurrection and his imminent return. Real, safe, real, real faith, saving faith, is lived out faith. And as you read James, you find that message all over the book, from start to finish. The entire book is about what that faith looks like. That's true for our passage this morning as well. What we see here is a description of the Christian faith. And I would hope you keep your Bibles open. If you have them with you this morning, just keep them right open. James 5, 7 through 11. We're just going to go verse by verse through the text. James is describing here for us in our text what it looks like to live in the light of the hope of Christ's return. So how do we as Christians anticipate the return of Christ? There's a lot of things that we could say there, but James has one word for us. Patiently. Patiently. That's how we anticipate Christ's return. We see it right away beginning with verse 7. Look at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The Christians James is writing to, if you understand the context, if you know the context, you'll know that these Christians have left, or more accurately, they've been driven out of Jerusalem because of the persecution of the church. So persecution has arisen in this city. The Christians have been driven out. They've fled from their homes. They've fled from their families. And they're out in the countryside now, outside of Jerusalem, north and south. Most of them are now working as day laborers in order to, to just survive, in order to put food on their tables. They, they, they work for, for the man, as it were. Many of them are being treated unfairly by their employers. And James is here in chapter 5 telling them that, that what should characterize them in that work, even when they feel like they're being treated unfairly, what should characterize them is their patient hope, their patient anticipation in Christ's return. Be patient for the coming of the Lord. Their, their, their hope in the return of Christ is to be so much a part of who they are and so unending that their hope far, far, far outweighs their suffering. Many of us are enduring some things like what the Christian James is, is writing to are enduring. It's not religious persecution. But, but there are things that I know that many of you are enduring that you have no power to change. Maybe it's, maybe it's the grief from the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's an adult child 
whose life choices leave you sorrowful. And you know there's nothing you can do. Maybe it's the difficulties of caring for aging parents. Maybe you're enduring life with a disability. For some of you, someone else's sin, something that you had no control over, but it was their sin decades ago that has brought consequences every day into your life. And those consequences of their sin just just seem to hang around like like a rot, like a stench. Every day you're reminded of what, what they've done. Whatever it is, all of us have areas of our life that I know that we'd like to see change, and yet we're powerless to change. Whatever those circumstances are, they bring suffering, real suffering. That suffering that you're enduring is how you identify with these Christians that James is writing to. It's what connects this passage to you. It's what the Holy Spirit is is drawing you into so that you would better understand patience. The Holy Spirit's instruction to you in suffering, whatever it is, is this. Be patient. And I read that and I think, well, what do you mean exactly by that, James? Like, be, like, be, just be patient? Like, like, like we're in the, in the waiting room of the hospital? No, there's uncertainty in the hospital, isn't there? We're not anxiously, as Christians, we're not anxiously waiting for uncertain news. James says we're to be patient like a farmer waiting for his crops. Look at verse 7 again. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient. That's the type of patience we're to have. Being patient about it until it receives early and late rains. The early rains, we're not used to this living in the city, but the early, early rains reminded the farmer that it was planting time. He, he had to plant his seed so that it would sprout with the early rains. And the, the rains later in this season brought growth. And James and his hearers understood that it was God who brought the early rains. And it was God who brought the later rains every single year. Those rains were steady, they were predictable, and they were necessary for their livelihood. And all of that waiting that the farmer does is necessary. It's a part of the process. He is a part of that process. The plants are all undergoing a a transformation process from seed to harvest. Every stage of that growth is building and strengthening the plant for the harvest, what James calls the the precious fruit. Now think about it. If the farmer awaiting his crop gets anxious and he says, I want my harvest now, before the early rains have come and taken full effect, what does he get? He's just, just, he's just planted his seed. Well, he gets some half-sprouted seed, and that's worth nothing to him. And that same farmer, if he tries to bring in the harvest in, in the middle of the season, and let's say it's barley that he's planting, if, if he tries to bring in the barley plants when they're just knee-high and there's no fruit on the grain yet, what does he get? He gets tall grass. Again, worthless. He has to wait patiently, doesn't he? All the way until the end when the grain is ripe in order to obtain his prize. That farmer's hope, all of his work, everything that he does, all that he's planning for, 
his daily routine, sun up to sundown, it's all anticipating that harvest at the end. It's really hard to identify with him because we have grocery stores, but just try to put yourself in his or her place. The end, the harvest, that's what defines who the farmer is at the beginning and in the middle. He's a barley farmer, not a seed farmer, not a tall grass farmer. He's a barley farmer. The harvest he's looking forward to makes all of the excruciating labor that he does worthwhile. So when he's plowing the fields by hand, no tractor, right? He's plowing the fields by hand, it makes it worthwhile. It makes the work of of planting the seed worthwhile. When he's pulling weeds in in the heat of the summer, he knows that he's doing that for the end. When he's up late at night, protecting his crops from the animals, from the deer who would, would, would love to eat his tall grass. He's doing that anticipating the crop at the end. He's doing it because of the harvest. That harvest is all that he has to look forward to. It means everything to him. He understands that his life depends 100% fully, totally on that harvest. And so he patiently waits because of the joy of the harvest set before him. He endures whatever he's got to endure to make it to that day. Listen to this. The more his life depends on that harvest, the more patient he will be as he waits. Let me say that again, because that's, that's what James wants us to see here. It's what the Spirit and James wants us to see. The more the farmer depends on the harvest the more patient he will be as he waits. So what does that mean for us? Well, listen, the more you're looking forward to Christ's return, the more patient you will be in your suffering. The more anticipation you have, the more eagerly you will wait for the return of Christ, the more you will put up with while you wait. In verse 8, James encourages his readers, so like the farmer, be patient. And then he gives this interesting command. Look at verse 8. Establish your hearts. Establish hearts. Do you see that in verse 8? Some of, some of your translations might say strengthen your hearts or stand firm. That's kind of Christianese, isn't it? Think, think of setting a, a corner post for a wire fence. I don't know if you've done that before. If you've built a woven wire fence or a stretch, stretching fence, when you're stretching a fence, the corner post has to be really strong. The entire fence depends on the strength of the corner post. So the deeper you set the corner post and the more stone and the more concrete you surround that post with, the more firmly you establish it. And the more firmly established the post is, the tighter you can pull the fence, and so the stronger the rest of the fence will be. So in a similar, similar way, verses 7 and 8, our hearts have got to be deeply, firmly established in something. And what is it? Well, it's in the promise of Christ's return. Christ is coming back. If your heart, and that's... that's the Bible talk for that bit of you that, that drives the rest of your life, if your heart isn't firmly established in the promise of Christ's return, then when there is any tension whatsoever put on your life, when life pulls you from different directions, 
when suffering is, is trying to pull you over, you snap. And then the rest of the fence comes crashing down. Your faith collapses. That's why James says, establish your hearts. He doesn't mean to establish it in your good works, not in your happiness, not in your family, not in your country, not in your bank account. Establish your hearts in the promise of Christ's return. Our hearts must be firmly and deeply set in God's faithfulness to fulfill His promises or our faith will fail. And then James adds to that command with this encouragement. It's not just an empty command. There's something behind it. He says, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do you see that in verse 8? Look at verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. In order to endure this life, and remain in the faith, which is what we're called to do throughout the New Testament. Our hearts, our identity, who we are, has got to be deeply, firmly established in the reality of Christ's return, and His return is at hand, James says. And that at-handedness, the the, the nearness of Christ's return is meant to be a bright spot of encouragement for us as Christians. Now, there's a couple ways we can understand this at-handedness. One way to understand this is to think of it as, as a just wait a few more minutes type of at-handedness. This is the parents in the car with their kids on a road trip type of encouragement, right? So, so we're almost there, just hold it for five more minutes, right? You, you can understand James that way, but to understand James that way, that nearness in time way of understanding Christ's return Uh, is problematic. The the problem is this. As it turns out, if we look back in history, if James is telling these churches that Jesus will return any moment now, so all you have to do is wait a little while longer, well, many, 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 many moments have passed, haven't they? As it turns out, Jesus was not coming back in just a few more days. Or even just a few more years. So, so how should we understand this at-handedness if it is not nearness in time? Well, Peter uses this idea. We all, I know you guys do this. We do this as well. This is how you study Scripture. You let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? So we, we look elsewhere in Scripture for this same idea. And Peter uses this. 1 Peter 4, 7, when he says, The end of all things is at hand. There it is, same word. The end of all things is at hand, Peter says. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So Peter has that same idea as encouraging Christians to, to be faithful. And Paul also uses this idea. Romans 13, 12. He says, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The idea in both of those, in Peter and Paul, is not any minute now at handedness. Doesn't really have that specific timing sense to it. In both Peter and Paul, the at handedness has more of an effectual sense to it. 
So, so think of it this way. The closer a magnet gets to iron, the stronger its pull. Already the magnet is close enough to have a noticeable effect. Or, or, or if, if you don't want to think of it as a magnet, because the Bible doesn't say it that way, think of it the way the Bible talks about it, as light. Paul says it this way. He refers to the light coming at dawn. At dawn, and you've experienced this before, a little while before you see the sun, if you're up early, before the sun comes up, the light is already having an effect on the world. The sky goes from a, a, a black to kind of a gray. The stars start to disappear. You can start to see the outline of objects around you. And because of those effects, you know the rising of the sun is at hand, right? So for the New Testament writers, the return of Christ is such an enormous event, like the dawn, that they use that idea of at-handedness to describe it. So think of how big it will be. Think of the, the enormity of Christ's return. The entire world will be judged. That's a big deal. The returning king will destroy death, the last enemy. And new heavens and a new earth will be rush, ushered in. This is the final event. And because this is such a massive approaching event, its magnetic pull or, or its light is already, the effects are already being seen. And we, we see that in the Christian life. Already the effects of Christ's return have begun. Already, many of us have been born again into a new creation reality. Already, we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in the light of that new reality. We could not do that if we were not new creations already. The sun is rising. It is at hand. And friends, this is the sort of nearness, the, this effectual nearness, is what gives us reason to wait patiently. And the inverse is also true. Okay, so, so when we are not anticipating Christ's return, we lose the ability to wait patiently. And that expresses itself in all sorts of ways. One way in particular, James points out, and we see it in, in verse 9. One of the ways that James says our lack of hoping is expressed is in how we treat one another. So, let's just ask the, the blunt question, are you grumbling about other people? Other Christians, no less. Why do we grumble? Why do we do that? Why do we, why do we grumble against one another? Well, it's because we don't really believe that Christ's return is at hand. Rather than hoping in Christ's return, which is, which is out there, and yet certainly coming, what we are tempted to do in the flesh is put our hope right here, in the here and now. And friends, that is a hope that will constantly fail us. If not today, then tomorrow. And, and, and our realization of that, whether we're conscious of it or not, it leads us to grumble. And so we grumble. And so James warns Christians who are tempted to grumble the judge is standing at the door 
friends, he is at hand. Again, he's, he's pointing us to the, the imminence of Christ's return. And, and the nearness of his coming is to have a sanctifying effect on us now. The, the reality of Christ's return is to so affect us that we will realize we need each other as Christians. We, we will see the gift of the church. Christ has given us one another to help us be patient, to encourage one another, to weep together in suffering, to rejoice together when there is something to rejoice about. To, he's given us one another to build one another up, one another up, and, and most of all, to remind one another that we have every reason set before us to endure hardship, a very good reason. We are to point one another to God's faithfulness in the past and to his faithfulness in the future and to proclaim to one another his promises so that we will make it to the end. To grumble, to grumble against one another while we wait is to despise the very gift that God has given us to help us to wait. Grumbling is a sign of faithlessness. Faithlessness. It's a sign of unbelief in God's promises. It's a sign that our, our faith and our hope are not truly in Christ. And so we are warned by James that the judge is at the door. In other words, grumbling is a sign of our unbelief. And our unbelief is a sign that we are not trusting in Christ. So if we would realize how good that God has been to us, even now, while we wait, if we would see other Christians as cherished gifts from the Spirit to help us persevere in the faith, we would not grumble. We would be thankful, ever so thankful. God has given us one another to help us to be patient. And from here, James moves on to another example of how to be patient. So we have the, the farmer, the negative example of grumbling, and then another positive example of the prophets. Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now the prophets, we understand, the Old Testament prophets, trusted in God's promises. They were the ones who received God's promises, weren't they? They were the ones who received the word of God's promises and spoke them to others. That's why James says in verse 10, they spoke in the name of the Lord. The prophets endured hardship for the very reason that they had heard from God. They, they, they heard God's voice. And so they knew they could trust him. And they would endure hardship knowing that they had experienced God's voice and spoken on God's behalf and their faith was this assured in what God had said. And here's the thing that we need to see from a whole Bible perspective. Those prophets who were waiting and looking forward to God's answer to answered promises were looking forward to the arrival of Messiah, weren't they? And friends, we, we have a, a bit of an advantage over the prophets because we have... Messiah. We have the Christ. We have seen those promises come to fulfillment. 
That's what James is hinting at here. The prophets received the word of God and spoke about the coming of Christ, and their lives were profoundly affected by their anticipation of the coming Christ. That, that nearness to God and that promise gave them a, a reason to endure opposition. How much more should we? We have the word of God. We have the Christ who has come. He has been given to us already. What the prophets longed for, we have. Hebrews 1.1, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Friends, we have every reason to be steadfast as we're waiting on Christ's return. Our faith is not an irrational faith. It's not wishful thinking. Our faith is firmly established in what Christ has already accomplished. And our hope is in what he is already accomplishing while we wait. Because his return is already having an effect now. Well, the last example that, that James gives us is Job. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, behold... And when he uses that word, behold, he really wants us to pay attention here. It's the climax to his argument. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. There is reward, friends, there's reward in perseverance. That's what James wants us to see here. And Job is our example of the persevering. If you don't know the story of Job, let me just summarize it for you in a nutshell. It begins with Satan challenging God and basically saying that the only reason anyone follows God is because they've received material wealth from him, material blessing from him. And God says, no, that's not true. Look at my servant Job. Test him. Job is this really wealthy guy who has been immensely blessed by God. He has a, a huge estate. He's got tons of workers to help him on his land and with his flocks. He's got grown kids who love him. He has a, a great reputation in town. All of the people who works for him love him. His kids love him. The entire town loves him. He's righteous. He's generous in all that God has given him. He's blessing other people and he trusts in the Lord. So Satan to test Job, takes everything from him. He takes his kids, he takes his home, he takes his possessions, he takes his health, he even takes his reputation away. All of it gone in a matter of days. And that's just the intro to the book. That, that's what's going on behind the scenes. In the rest of the book, for like 38 chapters, we see this back and forth between Job and his three friends, and they're all speculating as to what took place because nobody really understands. They're wondering what happened to Job. And most of their wondering is accusing. They're mostly accusing Job of having done something wrong. And throughout the story, Job defends himself because he knows he's been faithful to God. And he grieves. And he prays these deep, questioning prayers to God. But all the while, Job is confident, even in his questioning, he's confident that God is faithful. That God is true. 
Think about Job contrasted to the prophets. The prophets that we saw in verse 10 had heard from the Lord. And so their hearing from the Lord helped them to remain steadfast. That is not what happened to Job. Job did not get a word from the Lord at the beginning of the book. He just got everything taken from him and then silence from God. And even without any promises from God, without any word from the Lord that would give him reason to hope in the future, he remained steadfast. Do you know why? Think about it, that the farmer saw his crops growing, and so he knew that the harvest was coming. The prophets heard from God, and so they trusted that what he said was true. Job didn't have either of those things. Job had to trust only in God's character. When he could not see God working and he could not hear God speaking, he trusted that God, because God is God, that whatever he ordains is right. And Job trusted that even when he didn't know what God would ordain. Job says in the book, though he slay me, I will still hope in him. Job didn't know anything about what was going on behind the scenes. He did not know that God had forbidden Satan from taking his life. Job did not know that God had allowed Satan to take everything else. But what he did know was that God was to be trusted because he is holy and he is righteous and he is just. So so if Job could endure his trials based solely on what he knew of the character of God, how much more can we endure ours? We have been given Christ, friends, who said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so how much more of God's character do we know than Job did? We have been given forgiveness in Christ, assuring this, assuring us that even our unknown sins are covered by his blood. We have been given the love of God in Christ and can be confident that there is no condemnation in Him. We have been given adoption through Christ so we know that we are God's children. And friends, we have the reality of the resurrection and the promise of Christ's return. Job had none of those things. He just had this one little bit of knowledge. God is sovereign. And God is just. And that was enough for Job. So James is teaching us here that the purpose, the purpose of Job's suffering, the purpose of the book of Job, when it came down to it, was not to prove Job's righteousness. No, God's purpose was to reveal his own compassion and mercy to you and me. Look at verse 11. Speaking of Job's story, And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, James tells us, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So at the end of the book of Job, you should know this, God God revealed his mercy. He forgave Job's friends who had essentially slandered God's character. He forgave Job for his, we'll call it whining. And he rewarded Job by more than doubling all that Satan had taken from him. So there's Job's story, and the end of Job's story is a picture, again, of God's 
character, his mercy, his compassion, how much more do we have? How much more do we have to look forward to? In Christ, we have seen the fullness of God's mercy. Much more than doubling a bunch of sheep. We have seen the fullness of God's mercy. We, we have a greater reason for steadfastness than Job. We have a greater reason for patience than the prophets. We have a greater hope than a farmer waiting for the harvest. We have Jesus Christ. If you can't claim Christ as your own this morning, friend, all of what we've seen, any, any reason to hope in the future, it's not a hope that you have. If you are not hoping in Christ, then when difficulty comes, and it will, your only hope will be in this life, in yourself, or in your family, or in your friends. And I can promise you, each one of those people will let you down. So friend, hope in Christ. He's the only one who gives you a foundation in this life and a reason to look forward to the next. And I know some of you are not in that category. Most of you aren't. You're, you're here. You're here at church on a beautiful Sunday morning. But for those of you who hear these things and you know that they're true, and yet you struggle to anchor, anchor yourself deeply in God's faithfulness, if you think, well, I, I can't establish my heart. It's hard. There, there are too many things that I, that I can feel and I can touch and I can see that are easier to establish myself in. But you want to establish your heart in Christ. Listen to what the Spirit tells us in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. The Lord is faithful. I should say, as the text says, but the Lord is faithful, as opposed to us. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. He will establish you. He will establish your heart. God is the one who ultimately establishes your heart in hope, in the hope of Christ's return. God has saved you in Christ. He has established you in Christ. If you are, if you are weak this morning, be patient, and He will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. Amen? Amen. This is God's Word, and this is a promise to you. We can trust Him in this. Let's pray that we would. Our Father in Heaven, You have shown us very clearly what our life ought to look like as we hope in Christ's return. And you've even promised us when we struggle to do that, that you will establish our, our hearts. So Lord, establish our hearts. Please. We are weak. Our eyes stray. Our hearts stray. But you have said you would establish us. So Lord, please establish us. 
in Christ's name. Amen.